Well, on Easter, we saw together the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, and now we continue to study one of his epistles together, and what a truly remarkable thing. Would you not agree that this one who hated God and hated his gospel was converted by sovereign grace, and now by divine inspiration writes these words? that are part of God's own word, the Bible. So we've been looking through Ephesians now for quite some time, and we're focused this morning on verses 8 or 9 through 12 of Ephesians, the first chapter. We're going to begin reading, however, at verse 3 and read through verse 14. Remember, verses 3 through 14 in the Greek New Testament, is, it's really one sentence. No intervening mark of punctuation. Well, let's bow in prayer. We ask, Heavenly Father, now as we come to this marvelous passage of Scripture, that you would apply this word especially to hearts that are in need of remembering that you reign, that Christ is head over all things for the sake of his church that there is nothing in life that is outside of your purview and the sovereignty and mercy and love that you show to your people, even in the darkest of times. And may your church indeed find in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus and in the passage before us the encouragement to know that you are at work in this world in order to bring about in your sovereignty the salvation of all of your people. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to know and to remember these things, that we might be more conformed to the image of your Son when we leave this place than we were before coming in. But also, Father, even though believers are addressed from this text, there undoubtedly are those among us today that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, every Lord's Day we believe that to be the case. And we pray that someone here today that does not know Christ would put his or her trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. For we ask it in the name of the only mediator between God and man, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Ephesians, the first chapter, beginning with verse 3. This is the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance 
until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now go back, if you will, to the middle of verse 8. Let's read again the text, and you will, as usual, you will need the Bible open before you. This is very rich, thick vocabulary, and you'll need the Bible before you. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, In him we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might might be to the praise of his glory. That's our text. Now the title of this morning's sermon, if you've noticed it in the bulletin today, would be Audacious. Did we not have revealed right in our text by God through the Apostle Paul, God's plan for the ages? But that's what we have here. God's plan for the ages. I don't mean all of the particulars. I don't mean all of the details. But I mean the overarching plan that God has for this world and this universe we find in the text that we have read this morning. Immediately that says to us that there is purpose in this world, that God has a plan for his world, that God has not forsaken his people in this world, that all things in this world under the headship of Christ are being brought together for the fulfillment of this eternal decretive plan of God, and that includes your life and mine as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. In contrast with the world that thinks that we have to find purposes in life, we have to fill our lives with purposes, finite things that pass away, the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ believes that our God reigns, that he has an overarching plan and purpose for his world, that we do not live in a chance universe, but we live in a world that is permeated with the purpose of Almighty God and the salvation of his people, even through the darkest of times. And so God has revealed his plan to us this morning. I wonder if there might even be someone here today, someone who has never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, someone who is tempted to throw away God's most precious gift to you, your own life. Because you have a sense within your heart there is no purpose and no meaning to to this world. This text can help you see otherwise, and that as your sins are forgiven, your guilt is removed, and trusting Jesus Christ as a byproduct of that, you will find that you can understand that there is a purpose in the world and purpose for your life. So here the Apostle Paul, using, as I mentioned, thick, rich vocabulary, brings to us this vast, sweeping view of history. And I think the problem is that so often we're so focused upon ourselves that we, we really don't care about these things. But we should, because this is what makes your life and those things that you do every day make sense. This fits your life into the vast vista of God's eternal plan. This helps you not to simply be parochial, but to see that you are here in order that you might understand and be a part of what God is doing to redeem and save his world. And so I would, in this text this morning, see five truths about God's plan. Five truths about God's plan. They're all found here in the text. 
The first thing about God's plan that we see from this text is that God's plan is a wise plan. God's plan is a wise plan. Now, when we come to verses 8 and 9, there's some question as to how this should be translated. And I would like to offer the suggestion. Remember, in the Greek New Testament, the New Testament was originally written in Koine Greek. We have one long sentence here, and there was no intervening mark of punctuation, and so we have to determine where do the modifiers work, how do the prepositional phrases fit together, uh, to what do these things point. And I would like to offer the suggestion that it should actually be translated this way. Verses 7 and 8 should read this way. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, period. And then, beginning a new sentence, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. That simply makes sense. That the revelation of the mystery was in accordance with his wisdom and will. It makes sense to read it that way, and I think that's appropriate. God has given to us a revelation of his plan. And this God who reveals to us his plan, according to this text, gives it to us in wisdom and insight. In other words, our God is a wise God. The wisdom of God is something we need to think upon. God is an infinitely intelligent spirit. And three times in the New Testament, God is called the only wise God. So here is God in all of the fullness and richness of his attributes, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And this God is infinitely wise. What does that mean? It means that God knows how to take his knowledge and to accomplish his purpose. That God knows how to take his infinite knowledge and to accomplish his decree. That God in his infinite knowledge also wisely, according to his divine attributes, has set forth a plan that he might be honored and he might be glorified and that his people might be saved. The most discernible way in which we see God's wisdom, of course, is in his redeeming plan. And all of Ephesians 1 is about that marvelous plan of union with Christ and how he saves us as people, as we have been seeing. The most discernible way in which to see that God is wise is to see how he saves sinners from our sins. Now let me put it this way. If there was some great leader in the world who said to you, you know, I'm going to share my wisdom This great man of wisdom in this world. I'm going to share with you my wisdom about how it applies to a nation or to a crisis in the world. You would feel honored, wouldn't you? He, he, He would have your ear, would he not? You would lean in, wouldn't you? I want to hear what this very wise man has to say about what he is going to do and how he is going to apply his wisdom to this crisis in the world. Well, lean in, brothers and sisters, because a wiser than any man has in this text your ear, and he says to you, I want you to know my plan. I want you to understand my purpose for this world. Lean in and hear what I have to say. Not some wise man that's finite, whose wisdom is very limited, but the infinitely wise God says, lean in and hear my plan. 
And as you hear that plan unfolded in this text this morning, what I want you never to forget is that God's wise plan extends to your life right where you are today. Even in those things that seem to you to be incomprehensible, God's wise plan is being worked out for His glory and for your good. Even when you don't see it. Even when you don't comprehend it. Even when you don't understand it. The first thing we learn about God's plan is that it is a wise plan. Second thing we learn about God's plan is that it is a revealed plan. A revealed plan. So we read in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So he says, I want you, my people, to know my plan. I am revealing my plan to you. I am making known my plan to you. And he uses this term mystery here in verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will. Now what does he mean by that? Well, this is something that's pervasive in Paul's epistles, and we could look at many texts. But it means a secret that now has been made known. Something that once was secret that now has been revealed. And what is that secret that once was not known but now is revealed? Well, look at chapter 3 of Ephesians, verses 4 through 9. Ephesians 3, 4 and following. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. You see the word? which was not known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Well, we'll stop there. The mystery, he tells us, is simply this, something that was not known to the ages past. What was known in ages past through the prophets was that God would send the Messiah. What was known is that God would save his people. What was known is that the nations would be blessed through the Messiah and through Israel. What was not known is that both Jew and Gentile are accepted by the same Lord Jesus Christ on the same plane that we are equally accepted and equally justified in the presence of God when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. That you Gentiles believing in Christ are just as fully accepted as any Jew that believed on Christ in the Old Testament looking ahead to His coming. And so Jew and Gentile accepted on the same basis is a mystery that is now revealed. Ours, then, is an age of fulfillment, when mystery is no longer a mystery, when it is no longer a secret. And so he goes on to say in verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time. Now again, this is thick vocabulary. But remember, fullness of time has been used by Paul in other places. For example, the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4 says, when the time had fully come... God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who were under the law. 
So what he's saying is this, the fullness of time has come for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, for the church. It's been illustrated this way. Suppose we had an hourglass up here and you watch the sand that is passing from the top into the bottom until all of the sand from the top has gone into the bottom. There you have something of what Paul has in mind. God's eternal decree, the lower part of that decree, is now full. And in the coming of Christ and His incarnation, His shed blood on the cross, His resurrection, and the preaching of the gospel to the nations to include Gentiles as well as Jew, we now live in a time of fulfillment. Therefore, it is the day of proclamation. No longer a secret, no longer a mystery, but we have good news to proclaim to the world. This is the age of missions. This is the age of preaching. This is the age of proclamation. The time between Christ's ascension until his glorious return is for the proclaiming of the mystery that is now revealed. The church's calling is to proclaim in the world that Christ has come and that every sinner who believes on him, no matter whether Jew or Gentile, no matter what your background may be, no matter how deep your sins have been, that every sinner who trusts in Christ is saved by grace. That's what it means when we read in this text of a revealed plan. But that's not all. A third thing we learn about God's plan is that God's plan is a comprehensive plan. A comprehensive plan, and we see it here in verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now the term that is used here in verse 10 for plan was the word in the Greek New Testament and in the ancient world that usually meant economy. And that meant the way in which a household is administered, and the flavor is still here in this passage without doubt. By the use of the term plan, remember the original meaning, administering a household, we are told that the ultimate purpose of God's decree is Christ and His glory, and that Christ as the mediator is the one who now administers the household of God. All of the keys are in his hand. All of the administration of God's eternal plan to save his people are in the hands of the mediator. All that God would fulfill in order to bring Jew and Gentile together in that heavenly kingdom, it's all being administered through Jesus Christ, your Lord. And then he uses a very important word. Notice he says in verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Well, to unite all things in him is a very long word. Anakephalaiosthai. And the noun from which it is derived, kephalion, means head. So what he is saying here is that all things are being brought under the headship of Jesus Christ. It's been translated that all things in heaven alike, that in heaven and earth alike, should find their one true head in 
Christ. So what is being told us here is that God's plan is so comprehensive that everything in heaven and on earth is now under the headship of Christ. And as we read at the end of this chapter, all things are under the headship of Christ who is achieving and accomplishing all things for the sake of his church. Man, that's something. That's amazing. And you may say, well, it just doesn't seem that way. It doesn't look that way. Not when I look at the news, not when I look at my own life, it doesn't seem that way. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Keep your finger where it is. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. See, in verse 8, the writer says, putting everything in subjection under Christ's feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Now, that's what Paul is saying. There is nothing outside of his control. Everything is under the headship of Christ. He left nothing outside of his control. But let's read on. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So do you see what the writer of Hebrews is saying? Everything is under the sovereignty of the mediator, Jesus Christ. Everything. But we do not yet see everything under his lordship. We cannot comprehend how this is so. We do not yet see the end result to which he is taking it. But it is true all the same. It is true nonetheless. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. As he speaks of having this treasure in earthen jars and the difficulty of his ministry, he says in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, verse 16, So we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So you may say, it surely doesn't seem to me that all things are under the headship of Jesus Christ, but it's true all the same. The headship of Christ over all things means that the universe, the world, nothing is left to drift aimlessly. And folks, this is breathtaking. If you're not moved by it, something's wrong. This is absolutely breathtaking that his plan and purpose in Christ is so comprehensive, so comprehensive that there is nothing that is allowed to drift aimlessly, but all is in his sovereign hands. And the problem is that we're like the boy looking in the microscope. All we can see is right here. We can't see what is above us and around us because we're so focused on ourselves. 
rather than upon Christ and what God is doing through him. How privileged you are. You live in the day of fulfillment, the day of proclamation, the day when the mystery has been revealed and in which you are being told that all things are under the headship and sovereignty of Jesus Christ. But we walk by faith and not by sight. We don't yet see it. Because you see, it's not what we see that matters. It's what God promises that matters. We walk by faith and not by sight. Listen to these words of the Dutch theologian Herman Bobbing. Round about us, we observe so many facts which seem to be unreasonable, so much undeserved suffering, so many unaccountable calamities, such an uneven and inexplicable distribution of destiny, and such an enormous contrast between the extremes of joy and sorrow that anyone reflecting on these things is forced to choose between viewing this universe as if it were governed by the blind will of an unbenign deity, as is done by pessimism, or upon the basis of Scripture and by faith to rest in the absolute and sovereign, yet however incomprehensible, wise and holy will of Him who one day will cause the full light of heaven to dawn upon such mysteries of life. That's the believer. We know the day is coming when the full light of day will dawn on the mysteries of life. It's a comprehensive plan, people of God. But there's a fourth thing we know about this plan. God's plan is an invincible plan. It is an invincible plan. And we see it here in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So Paul giving assurance to the people of God in Ephesus in the cosmic struggle in which we are now involved says to them and to us, you are not a cog in a wheel. You are not lost in the immensity of God's plan, but rather you are so much a part of the plan of God that he has given to you an inheritance. God has given to you an inheritance, he says in verse 11. You have obtained an inheritance. Now look at 1 Peter chapter 1. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, we have a reminder of that inheritance. 1 Peter 1, 3 and following. In which God says through Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. You see the word? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There is, according to Peter, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It is kept in heaven for you, and you are kept for it by the sovereign grace of God, because his plan is invincible. Now, if you read Ephesians 1, you will find constantly the language of purpose 
And I won't take the time to look at all of it with you, but you can't miss it. But you see it here again in verse 11. Look at the language of purpose. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined. That's the language of purpose. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now keep your eye on this text where it begins that he works according to the purpose of him who works. Let me show you what's here. He works. That's providence. All things. That's the extent of God's moral government. After the council, that's God's eternal decree. Of his own will, that's the first cause of all things. So I ask you, what is left out? Is there anything left out? Is there any one left out? Is there any circumstance left out? Or does God say in this passage that for his people he is working all things after the counsel of his own will? Is that what he says? Hence, nothing can frustrate the purpose and plan of God to save his people. Perry Miller, who certainly was no Puritan, made the comment that it was impossible to find a disillusioned Puritan because the Puritans, you see, held to these truths. So here on our tiny planet, everything is moving toward God's intended goal and we live as those who are confident in God's invincible plan. And denial of God's government makes hopeless people and practical atheists. But people of God, you're not hopeless. And there is no reason for you to live as a practical atheist, as if you lived in a chance universe. And I want to bring you the the comfort of what the Bible says as summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 10. What do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God in which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance but from his fatherly hand. What does this knowledge of God's creation and providence, how does it help us? We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved." But there's a fifth thing we learn about God's plan. God's plan is a self-glorifying plan. It is a God-glorifying plan. And so he says in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. He said something similar in verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. To the praise of His glory. What does that mean? 
There are two words that are used for glory, God's glory in the Bible. The Old Testament word is kavod. It basically means heavy. It means weighty. The New Testament word is doxa. That essentially means the splendor of light. It has to do with reputation and fame. What then is Paul saying to us here when he speaks of God's glory in this passage? He is saying God's purpose is to display the grandeur of his own character. How does our salvation glorify God? God's will is manifest. His attributes shine through. Overcoming sin in our lives through the cross and resurrection, manifesting his justice and his love. The highest manifestation of God's glory is in the salvation of sinners. And if God's glory is the goal of his plan, if God's glory is the goal of his plan, then God's glory needs to be the goal of my life and your life. One of our ruling elders told me recently he was with a a friend who witnessed to an unbeliever. And he basically said, perhaps not in these words, but conveyed the thought that um, he needed to believe in God because God needs a relationship with us. Now, you know, that's so untrue. That is not true. There's no biblical truth in that. God is self-contained. He needs no one and nothing outside of himself, which is what makes grace so wonderful. He wants a relationship with sinners. He does not need a relationship with sinners. He wants a relationship with pardoned and forgiven sinners. Why should I trust a God who needs me? God doesn't need me. I need God. Why has he created us? Why has he redeemed us? For, children, you know, what does your catechism say? For his own glory. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord has made all things for himself. You see, because of his intrinsic excellence, God has the right to seek his own glory in our lives. So young people, listen. There is only one thing worth living for in this life. One thing. And that one thing is the glory of God. And if you go the other way, And you seek your autonomy. Do you know what that word means, children? It means being a law unto yourselves. I can go my own way. I can figure it out. I can set the direction of my life. No one can tell me what to do. God has no rights in my life. The Bible has no authority. If you go that route, you think it's going to make you happy, but let me tell you it won't. Not that your happiness is the chief end of everything, because it isn't, but it won't. It's going to lead to death. It leads to hell. This is what happened in Genesis 3. The autonomy, the autonomy of Adam when he disobeyed. Satan said, has God said? Doubt is cast into Eve's mind. Adam leads the whole race. Plunges us into sin 
and into rebellion. Autonomy has led to the destruction of the human race. When God saves a sinner, He puts within our hearts a new desire to begin to learn, to seek, to live for the glory of God. And so I say it to you again, young people, children, all of us. And if you're an unbeliever, you are not living for the glory of God. You have no idea what it means to live for the glory of God. You need a Savior. You need a Redeemer who shed His blood and redeemed sinners and who rose from the dead. And then you will begin to understand what it means to live for the purpose for which God created human beings for His own glory. Young people, there is only one thing worth living for, and that is the glory of God. The end for which God created the world was His own glory. Well, let's bring this to a conclusion. I'm sure you will agree with me there's an awful lot here. The vocabulary is very rich and very thick. There's this overarching view of where God is leading history. So what does this mean for your life and mine? God has a wise plan, a revealed plan, a comprehensive plan, an invincible plan, and a God-glorifying plan. So let's ask some questions. Does God have a wise plan? Then trust him no matter what. Does God have a revealed plan? Then tell the world. Does God have a comprehensive plan? Then bring all things in your life under the direction of his word. Does God have an invincible plan? Then let's live as those who are biblically optimistic about where God is leading this world for the long haul, even when things in this world and in our lives seem to contradict it. To put it the way, I believe it was Donald Guthrie, the New Testament scholar, who put it this way, read your Bible sitting down and the newspaper standing up. You're not going to spend much time reading a newspaper standing up. Let the greatest influence on your life be what the Bible says about God's purpose and plan. Does God have a self-glorifying plan? then let's glorify Him right here and now in our lives. Are you seeking God's glory in your life? Is there someone here that needs to believe and repent because you're not? So do you see you belong to an entirely new world? You already belong to the age which is coming as a believer in Christ, and that calls you to live for the glory of God. And if this plan ever seems vague to you, then I encourage you to turn to the last chapters of the Bible in which at least you can see where God is leading it all. For example, in Revelation 5, 11, and 12, when he says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And if you feel that evil is winning, remember that the Bible promises that he will come again and he will destroy his enemy with the breath of his mouth. And when things don't add up for you and you can't figure it out, 
lift your eyes to the future in which God promises in the last book of the Bible, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And when you feel like just giving up and the struggle is too hard and you're in pain and you can't see clearly then cling to the promise of God. Do you know these words? I trust forever thy sure promise, thereon the soul can safely build. I know not one word thou speakest shall fall to earth as unfulfilled. The hills and mountains all may vanish, the universe collapse and flee, but not the smallest word thou givest, O Lord, shall unaccomplished be. So what does this text mean that we have read this morning? That God has a plan, that all things are under the headship of Christ. What does it mean? We sing it every Christmas. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And, and, Cosmic redemption. Cosmic redemption. Isn't that what we see here? Cosmic redemption calls for total commitment. So, child of God, believe him. His plan is wise, revealed, comprehensive, invincible, self-glorifying. His plan cannot fail. His plan will not fail. And he will fail none of his blood-bought children. God's people said, Amen. Amen.